National Trust Magazine, Summer 2022. Hello and welcome to the summer issue of National Trust Magazine. I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the magazine, and I'll be taking you through some of the highlights, including news, events and features. Brothers Paul and Mike McCartney grew up in the 1960s in a council house in Allerton in Liverpool. Mike practised his emerging photography skills on Paul and his friends while they wrote and rehearsed pop songs in the front parlour, little knowing they would go on to become the Beatles. As Paul turns 80, Mike returns to their childhood home and opens the floodgates of his memories. Along with the rest of the nation, we're commemorating Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee this year. National Trust places have hosted many royal visits over the centuries, mostly for pleasure, but sometimes to offer sanctuary. Delve into some of the stories behind royal visits. Here's Akia Henry, Glenn McCready and Olivia Vinor to tell you about what's been happening around the Trust. The Trust is beginning the first part of an ambitious new Green Corridors project to link city centres to their neighbouring countryside. By connecting towpaths, parks and woodlands, the Trust hopes to help people in urban areas to access green spaces and rural areas more easily. The Trust has committed to creating 20 accessible green corridors across England, Wales and Northern Ireland by 2030. The first has just been confirmed for Bath and consists of a three-mile route to connect the historic city to surrounding green spaces. Director-General Hilary McGrady pledged to create more green corridors in her pre-pandemic speech in January 2020, and this work is now underway. Many of us have felt the benefit of spending more time in the outdoors over the past couple of years, says Hilary. We want to give people in cities the chance to access the countryside more easily. Research has shown that those able to spend time in nature are likely to do more to help protect it. Bath's Green Corridor is made possible by the Trust's recent purchase of a 40-hectare stretch of land, Bathampton Meadows, by the River Avon. Dunes in Formby, Merseyside, once a dumping ground for waste tobacco, are going to be rejuvenated as a wildlife haven. Isabel Spall, project officer for the Trust, says, By removing the carpets of nettles and allowing the dunes to shift and move, we're boosting the survival chances of rare natterjack toads and other species. This work is part of a £10 million project funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and EU Life Programme. A generous donation from an anonymous donor means the Trust has been able to purchase an 18th-century portrait and return it to Wimpole in Cambridgeshire. The painting, by artist Thomas Hudson, is believed to show Lady Elizabeth York, who lived at Wimpole for eight years until 1748. The portrait had been on loan to Wimpole for several decades, but it was sold in 2014, and the Trust wasn't able to buy it at the time. Ian Stewart, Senior Collections and House Manager at Wimpole, says, We are delighted to finally acquire the portrait, which left a gap in our presentation of the York family story, and we're very grateful to the donor. This summer sees the 10-year anniversary of the Wales Coast Path, which stretches along Wales's 870-mile coast. The Trust cares for 157 miles of it, from Porthor on the Lean Peninsula in Gwynedd to the wild sandy beach of Marlow Sands in Pembrokeshire. 
Celebrations to mark the path's anniversary focus on the contribution of the many coast dodians who help take care of Wales's coastline for everyone to enjoy. The Trust is taking part in some of the celebratory events throughout the summer. There are so many benefits to planting trees. Trees improve habitats for wildlife, increase biodiversity, can benefit our health and well-being and also help reduce carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The Trust has announced an ambition to plant and establish 20 million trees by 2030 as part of our goal to become carbon net zero. Over the winter and spring, we have made great strides forward, planting more than 600,000 trees across the UK. In North Devon, we planted 60,000 trees, creating new woodland on the coast. The woodland habitat will help nature thrive in the area and encourage more pollinators and small mammals, such as bats. We've planted nearly 75,000 trees in the Midlands, too, including 39,000 native broad-leaved trees, such as rowan, hawthorn, alder and silver birch, planted across two sites in the Peak District. The tree planting that has been carried out so far has been supported by the generosity of everyone who has donated, as well as grant funders and our partners. There have been over 100,000 donations to the Planted Tree Appeal since it was launched in 2020. Thank you all. To help grow a greener future for people, nature and the climate, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag plant a tree. The Grade 2 listed Castlefield Viaduct in Manchester has stood unused for decades. Now the Trust is aiming to turn the 330-metre steel viaduct into a temporary park in the sky to create a meeting place for people and a habitat for nature which also celebrates the industrial heritage of Castlefield. The first year of the project is a pilot phase where the Trust hopes to capture visitors' opinions to help determine the viaduct's longer-term future. During this time, visitors will be able to explore part of the structure find out more about the viaduct's heritage and have the opportunity to learn some urban gardening tips. The pilot has been made possible thanks to funds raised by players of People's Postcode Lottery, as well as public donations, which will cover two-thirds of the build costs. And those were some of the highlights from the summer news. Our next feature is from the Director-General, your chance to hear from Hilary McGrady. This year marks a historic moment for the UK as we all come together to celebrate Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. I'm delighted to be able to share the Trust's plans to mark the Queen's 70-year reign, as well as take a moment to reflect on the Trust's historic connections to our monarchy. One of the great joys of my job is visiting so many of the homes, gardens and landscapes in the Trust's care. In a particularly busy week earlier this year, I visited both Chartwell and Kent and Birmingham's back-to-backs. On the face of it, these two places are worlds apart. Chartwell, Sir Winston Churchill's country home, is filled with beautiful paintings and mementos of his fascinating life. After treading in the footsteps of the most important figures of the 20th century, visitors can explore Chartwell's extensive grounds and enjoy views stretching across the Kent Weald. 
Meanwhile, visitors to the Back to Backs can learn about the history of working people in Birmingham. The city's last surviving court of back-to-backs, the 19th century buildings, portray the lives of the tradesmen and women who lived there in the 19th and 20th centuries. In the middle of the city, they are a far cry from the open fields of Kent. But the history of these aisles has rich threads that connect the places in our care. The royal one is ever-present. Churchill served both the Queen and King George VI as Prime Minister, and a visit from the Queen Mother to Chartwell in 1952 is recorded in the House's guestbook. The team here recently celebrated these connections with an outdoor photography exhibition called Churchill and the Crown. The back-to-backs connection is more modest, but no less significant. The last inhabitant of the courtyard was George Saunders, who arrived in Birmingham from St Kitts in the West Indies in the 1950s. Like many others arriving in the UK from the Caribbean, he faced prejudice and hardship, but he became a master tailor, renowned across the city. One of his most prestigious commissions was to make uniforms for the Queen's household cavalry, something he was incredibly proud of. A pair of the jodhpurs he made for the regiment is now part of the property's collection. From Her Majesty's Government to the skills of trade. To me, that speaks to one of the innate joys of the places we look after. The opportunity to explore our nation's history from different perspectives and through different lenses. Each house, garden and stretch of countryside has its own fascinating history, coming together to form a tapestry of stories. They are all part of the shared heritage that makes us who we are today. That the Trust should mark this historic moment with tree planting also feels particularly fitting, by reflecting on our history while leaving a legacy for the future. We're recreating historic avenues, cloning ancient trees and planting standout individual specimens. For visitors of the future, these will be another link to the shared moments of our past. René Olivieri, the newly appointed chair of the National Trust, took up his voluntary position in February. He explains why he wants to work for the Trust and leave the world in a better place. René's words are read by Glenn McCready. We began by asking, what made you want to become chair of the National Trust? I love the Trust's vision. Nature, beauty, history for everyone, forever. And admire our determination to get things done today while still planning far into the future. The Trust has the responsibility to think long-term. With each decision we make, there is a kind of invisible group of supporters sitting with us, made up of future generations. I believe that we have a duty to do the most good we can do, and I am in no doubt that what the Trust does is of the utmost importance. In connecting to the past and looking to the future, we are safeguarding much of what gives meaning to our lives and will enrich the lives of those who come after us. How have you found your first few weeks at the National Trust? I've really enjoyed them. The first thing I did was set up meetings so I could listen to staff, volunteers and supporters. I wanted to find out how they felt the past few years had been for the Trust and what staff thought were the most pressing things for the future. I feel the staff, members and supporters have responded brilliantly in the pandemic. I also spent time talking about long-term strategy and I took away from it that the Trust is confident, generous and ambitious. 
What do you see as the biggest challenges for the charity? We need to be aware about the impact that climate change is going to have on built heritage and the environment. We won't be able to mitigate all of the impacts, so we'll need to find ways to adapt. The Trust is already working on ways to improve the quality of the soil, air and water, and has a lot of influence among people. So I think we can take a leading role and help people to feel positively about addressing some of these problems. I'm optimistic, because the polls show that people care about the environment more than ever before. Do you already have a connection to a particular National Trust place? I spent a lot of time walking my dogs at the White Horse at Uffington when I lived in Oxford. It's a wonderful place to go because the far-reaching views make you feel connected and it's a perfect place to blow away the cobwebs. You get up to the hill and when the wind is high, people are playing with their kites. I was really touched to learn that the White Horse is regularly re-chalked by local volunteers too. I also love ecclesiastical architecture, so Fountains Abbey and Studley Royal Water Garden in North Yorkshire has it all for me. It feels a bit like a pilgrimage as you follow the long walk to arrive in the serene setting, which is punctuated with Cistercian walls. As a volunteer, what benefit do you feel volunteering brings for you and for the Trust? I think volunteers are a huge hidden asset in our society. The government doesn't measure their economic value, but they have a massive impact for communities. We also know that those who volunteer often feel happier, finding meaning in doing things for others, as well as keeping active and learning. Volunteering is both a gift and an exchange. I'm motivated to volunteer for the Trust because I can't think of anything that could be more exciting to have as a mission than to leave this world in a better state for our children than we found it. What was your background before you became Chair of the National Trust? I grew up on a farm in the foothills of Mount Hood in the US state of Oregon. I didn't love farm work, but I adored the wild and domestic animals and appreciated the beauty and diversity of that border region where forest gives way to desert. At the age of 17, I spent a year living with a Catholic family in Flanders. With Bruges on my doorstep, I became fascinated by medieval history. In 1980, after graduate school, I joined Blackwell's in the UK, where I became the publisher for economics and philosophy and published one of the first environmental textbooks. Later, as chief executive of Blackwell Publishing, I became more involved with the physical and biological sciences. I learned to appreciate experimentation, observation and evidence, which encouraged me to use scientific methods to analyse problems, such as having a hypothesis to test the best way to satisfy customers or improve the way you run a nature project. I'd like to find out more about how we employ such methods at the Trust. I'm now a British citizen, and as such, I want to contribute to the care of the rich landscape of heritage, nature and intellectual history in the UK. How do you think the Trust, as a heritage organisation, should explore and talk about history? Discoveries about the past are never going to be finished. It's like a tapestry with many different stories woven into it. The more we know, the more interesting that tapestry becomes. We should encourage research of all types and be open to many different points of view to make sure that everybody feels welcome and valued when they visit a trust property. I'd like to think that everyone could feel a personal connection when they visit, whether that's to a story from a property's past or an object from its collection. That was the Trust's new chair, René Olivieri.
For more information on the Board of Trustees, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash features forward slash board dash of dash trustees. From the hiding place of a king to a honeymoon spot for a soon-to-be queen, many trust places have been visited by royalty over the centuries. Delve into some intriguing stories and hear how we're commemorating Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee this summer. The National Trust is thrilled to be joining in the Jubilee celebrations this year to congratulate Her Majesty the Queen on her 70-year reign. In recent years, the Trust has had the honour of welcoming the Queen to some of the places in our care, such as a tour of the Giant's Causeway in County Antrim, which she took with the Duke of Edinburgh in 2016. The Trust has also hosted our President, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, who visited Chartwell in Kent in 2017 to thank those who had helped secure Sir Winston Churchill's personal items for the nation. And in 2018, Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, overnighted at Cliveden in Buckinghamshire before her late spring wedding. Throughout history, places in trust care have provided the backdrop to many intriguing royal visits. In this year of Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, we're taking a look back through the archives at some of the trust's rich heritage of royal connections. When it pleaseth her in the summer season to recreate herself abroad and view the estate of the country, every nobleman's house is her palace. Clergyman William Harrison wrote about Queen Elizabeth I in 1577. Elizabeth enjoyed visiting grand country estates, travelling with a great entourage of courtiers, servants and carts, and stopping in at places such as Mottisfont in Hampshire to visit her nobles. It was her way of meeting her subjects and displaying her power. Elizabeth was following in her Tudor father's footsteps. Henry VIII, who visited the Vine in Hampshire on his royal progresses with both Catherine of Aragon in 1510 and Anne Boleyn in 1535, would have taken over the house for the duration of his stay. National curator James Rothwell says, The house would have become, in essence, a palace for the visit. Henry's court was so grand, he was even known to bring his own musicians to play in the chapel. The Vine's owner, William, Lord Sandys, was made Lord Chamberlain under Henry VIII, thanks in no small part to his efforts to curry favour with the king. Sandys had pomegranates, the emblem of Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, carved into the walls of the oak gallery and created stained-glass portraits of the couple in the chapel. He would have wanted to make sure that everywhere the king looked, Sandys's admiration for him was clear. In Kent, meanwhile, Henry took such a shine to Knoll after hunting there that in 1538 he compelled its owner, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, to hand it over to him, declaring that Knoll standeth on a sound, perfect, wholesome ground. Welcoming a member of the royal family was considered to be a way of securing favour, but it was hugely expensive for the owner of the house, explains James. Subjects would often want to avoid it because of the sheer expense. Many of the trust's houses are filled with furnishings fit for royalty. When designing their homes, most noble families would have created a suite of staterooms with no expense spared to make sure they were equipped to host important visitors at short notice, says James. The jewel in the crown would have been the state bed. The majestic state bed at Clandon Park 
constructed in around 1710, would have had pride of place in the original Tudor house. With its highly worked silk embroidery, it was the most expensive object in the house. It was one of thousands of priceless artefacts damaged by the 2015 fire. Fortunately, thanks in large part to the quality of its construction, it was able to be dismantled and taken for conservation. There's a magnificent state bed at Penryn in Gwyneth, carved out of Welsh slate, the local quarried material that helped forge the fortunes of Penryn's pennant family. It quite literally weighs a ton. Queen Victoria, who visited Penryn with her husband, Prince Albert, and their children in October 1859, is said to have refused to sleep in it because it resembled a tombstone, though Penryn's curators have no documentary evidence for this. More custom furniture was made for Victoria at Hewenden in Buckinghamshire. Her friend and Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli shortened the legs of a dining chair so that the Queen, who stood just five feet tall, could reach the floor while she ate. Victoria enthusiasts can enjoy visiting these furniture curiosities, which are still on display at Penryn and Hewenden today. While many royal visits were regal affairs, some were less formal, even raucous events. At Uppark in West Sussex in 1785, the future George IV, then Prince of Wales, stayed with Sir Harry Fanshawe. They enjoyed three days of entertainments so riotous that Sir Harry's mother, aunt and cousin had to flee. There were boisterous horse, pony and sack races for men and women, to which the prince declared the Newmarket races dull in comparison. The party continued inside the house, where the prince is even believed to have tethered his dog to the leg of a priceless Chinese-style pagoda cabinet. In 1884, future monarchs the Prince and Princess of Wales, soon to be King Edward VII and Queen Alexandra, chose the magical modern home of Cragside in Northumberland to stay during their tour of the north. Lured by inventor Lord Armstrong's pioneering hydroelectricity, they favoured it over the region's castles and royal houses. Armstrong decorated the estate with glass and paper lanterns, while London caterers were brought in so the prince could enjoy his favourite champagne poured by his regular waiters. The Newcastle Daily Journal reported, The chateau itself was a blaze of light. From every window the bright rays of the electric lamps shone with purest radiance and the main front was made brilliant by a general illumination. After their festivities, guests often needed recuperation, which was exactly what George III and Queen Charlotte had in mind when they resided at Saltram in Devon for several weeks in 1789. The king was recovering from physical and mental ill health and took to the coast for the invigorating sea air. Around that time, the prince regent had fashionably taken up residence in Brighton for its therapeutic properties, says James. During this trip, the royal party also ventured up the River Tamar to Catil in Cornwall, which the queen described as a house of antique curiosities. As well as pleasure, pomp and ceremony, Royalty also received sanctuary at some trust places. The most remarkable must surely be the tale of Moseley Old Hall in Wolverhampton. On the evening of the 3rd of September 1651, Charles II was fleeing Cromwell's parliamentarian army after the Battle of Worcester, the most recent defeat for royalist forces. 
For six weeks, the desperate Charles relied on royalist and Roman Catholic families to help him hide, and he was taken into Mosley Old Hall for two days. He slept fully clothed, to aid a swift escape, in the very bed which still stands there today. When soldiers stormed the property, Charles hid under a trap door in the bedroom cupboard. Charles declared the dark, cramped hiding place the best place he was ever in. Mosley's owner, Thomas Whitgreave, saw Charles II safely on his way, disguised as a servant, to escape to France. More recently, a long-standing friendship was forged at Polston Lacey in Surrey, when owner Mrs Greville hosted the Duke and Duchess of York, the future King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, for their honeymoon in 1923. The newlyweds spent a week playing golf, wandering around the gardens and relaxing on the South Terrace, The couple clearly left a lasting impression, since Mrs. Greville bequeathed the Queen Mother her entire jewellery collection. It included the Greville tiara, which Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall, has been seen wearing in recent years. The Queen Mother returned to Polston Lacey in 1977, after Mrs. Greville had left it to the Trust, to plant a tree in commemoration of the Silver Jubilee of her daughter, Queen Elizabeth II. Twenty years later, the Trust welcomed Her Majesty the Queen herself to plant a tree, this time at Hardwick in Derbyshire, to commemorate its 400th anniversary. This year, the country joins to celebrate the 70th year of Her Majesty the Queen's reign. As well as holding parties and picnics, the Trust is marking the event with 70 tree-planting projects across the country. These living monuments range from individual trees, like the two elms being planted at Trengwainton in Cornwall, to a recreation of a historic avenue of 80 trees at Deerham near Bath. They will come to symbolise the remarkable reign of Britain's longest-serving monarch and the role the Trust continues to play in British royal history. Now let's hear about some of the 70 tree-planting projects being planned this year to commemorate the Platinum Jubilee. The Queen Mother visited her friend Lord Fairhaven regularly at Anglesey Abbey, his Jacobean home in Cambridgeshire. To mark the Jubilee, 500 new trees will be planted, including a large chestnut tree and an Acer X Freemanii, Autumn Fantasy, to create spectacular autumn colour in the years ahead. The Trust Surrey Hills team, with tenant farmer Steve Conisby, are planting a new orchard at Box Hill in Surrey. Lead ranger Mark Dawson says it'll be a traditional orchard with 250 fruit and nut trees, including apples, figs and cob nuts. We'll also have beehives to help pollination. Colk Abbey in Derbyshire has planned a commemoration of epic proportions. Ginkgo biloba, or the maidenhair tree, evolved about 170 million years ago, says head gardener Heloise Brook. We'll plant this living fossil, which can live to over 2,000 years old, for a long-lasting legacy. At Mussenden Temple and Downhill Domain in County Londonderry, vibrant new trees will be planted to mark the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. The trees will bring joyful colour to the bog garden and arboretum at the secret coastal haven of Bishop's Gate. At Tredega House in Newport, gardeners are restoring the last remaining Oak Avenue, at this 17th-century Welsh home. They're planting six trees to replace those which have been lost due to age, disease and weather damage. 
If you want to find out more about the Jubilee celebrations at Trust Properties this summer, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash jubilee. In our next feature, we hear about 24th Lynn Road, an ordinary home in Liverpool where musical history was changed forever. I met the photographer Mike McCartney there, and he told me some of his special memories of the childhood home he shared with his brother, the Beatle Paul, in the 1960s. The article is introduced by Akia Henry, and Mike's words are read by Glenn McCready. Brothers Paul and Mike McCartney grew up at 24th Lynn Road, an unassuming two-up, two-down council house in Allerton in Liverpool. They moved there in 1956, when Paul was 14 and Mike just 12. It was here, after their mother died unexpectedly of cancer, after just a few months in the house, that the grieving boys found solace in music and photography. It was here that Paul's friendship with fellow Beatle John Lennon blossomed, helping John to come to terms with the sudden death of his own mother in a road accident. It was here the duo wrote some of their best-known songs, including Love Me Do and I Saw Her Standing There and where the Beatles and their forerunners, the Quarrymen, returned elated after their Cavern Club performances. And it was from here that the family left in a clandestine midnight flit in 1964, as Beatlemania surged and Paul and his friends shot to global superstardom. The McCartneys were a close, working-class family. James was a cotton salesman and Mary a midwife. Mary was keen for her boys to better themselves, She discouraged time-wasting on creative pursuits and was proud when they both qualified to attend the INI, the Liverpool Institute High School for Boys. She saw the family's move to 24th Lynn Road as an important social step up. Mike remembers there being three different papers on the parlour walls because, in Mary's opinion, Sanderson wallpaper was the best that money could buy, but she could only afford roll ends. But Mary died when the family had been at 4th Lynn Road for barely a year. It was an earth-shattering time for her sons, and one that Mike still finds difficult to talk about, even so many years later. Their father, who had been in a band for a short time in his youth and had a much more relaxed approach to the arts than his wife, bought them a guitar and a banjo, acquired a drum kit that fell off the back of a lorry, and encouraged them to process their grief through music and photography. Time passed, and the house became a musical haven. As Paul and his friends rehearsed and composed in the parlour, Mike photographed them, little knowing the significance his pictures, developed and fixed in trays upstairs in his bedroom in the little bathroom, would one day come to hold. 24th Lynn Road is now in National Trust care, lovingly restored to appear as it did when the McCartneys lived here, right down to the mismatched parlour wallpaper. Visitors can book onto tours of the house, alongside John's childhood home of Mendips, and imagine for themselves what it must have been like to grow up here at such a pivotal time in musical history. As Mike explains, it all started here. We are walking into 24th Lynn Road, this little house in Allerton in Liverpool, where I used to live a million years ago, and the memories that come are quite extraordinary. This house was a very important part of my life, and my brother's, because this is where we lived. It was from here that I went to big school, It was here that I learnt photography, that I formed my band, The Scaffold. It was here my brother met his chums and they came over and rehearsed. The first impression you get as you walk inside is how cold it is, 
and it's not cold today. The only place that was warm in the whole house was when the fire was alight, here, in the front parlour. You'd have a bath upstairs and then run downstairs, freezing cold, and Mum would say, Right, come on! She'd do our kid first, him being the older one. When I say our kid, that's slang for brother or sister, so I mean my brother Paul, and then me. I'd sit in front of the fire, put my head down, and she would tousle it with her hand to dry it. We'd sit watching the black and white telly and feeling the cold from the window on the back of our heads. Lighting that fire was our first job when we got in from school. If you'd forgotten your key, you had to go in the back gate and climb the drain pipe. We'd go in the toilet window head first, hoping that the seat wasn't open, because otherwise you'd go down the toilet and disappear into the River Mersey. I remember a young man once looking in through Mum's net curtains. Our kid said, I've just met this bloke and we're working together. He's my new mate called John. He's coming round. He looked a bit cool. He had sideburns, we called them sideies, and skin-tight jeans, drainies. Dad wouldn't let us have drainies, though our kid found a way to get around that, and I thought, whoa, it's got to be this John bloke. That was the first time I met Johnny Moondog, here, in this room. Those two boys had an affinity. I always got on with John, like my brother did, because we all had tragedy in our lives at an early time. We had a natural understanding of what it is like to lose someone at that early age, and we had our own way of expressing it. Look at our kid, writing the line, Mother Mary comes to me, in his song Let It Be. And me, I made an album called Woman, with a picture of my mum as a nurse on the cover. One of my favourite photographs is of Paul and John sitting here together in this room. Our kid is left-handed, so the composition balances nicely. But more importantly, they're rehearsing to our kid's school book, and they've just written some words. If you look closely, you can actually see I saw her standing there as the headline and where they've crossed out and made corrections. Our kid said to me, what's important about your photograph of us is that's what it was. That was us, not Lennon and McCartney, just us, at home. It captures the truth. That is what we did, what we were good at. It's like the line from the musical Hamilton, no one else was in the room where it happened. It was just the three of us, but it becomes this amazing thing. The historic context of these things is fascinating because, okay, it's just pop, but actually it's not just pop. We, with our silly little songs, The Scaffold with Lily the Pink and Thank You Very Much, our kids' beautiful Beatles songs, so many of them, that's what stays in people's memories. The happy songs are the things you remember, so they're important in the bigger picture. We're in the dining room now, and here's my drum kit. It fell off the back of a lorry. I was the Beatles' first drummer, you know. I was learning these drums, and the Quarrymen, the band that preceded the Beatles, used to come to Fourth Lynn Road to rehearse. At the first rehearsal, we decided to do what we called the Keith Moon drum test, after the volatile drummer from The Who. I had to play the drums, and our kid had to go outside along the street and tell me how far he could get before he couldn't hear them, 
Dad was at work, obviously. He didn't know anything about it. Ready, steady, off I go, loud, loud, loud. He got right to the end of the road. We had very tolerant neighbours. Mum used to make Sunday dinners in the kitchen, and we'd all sit down at the dining table. We'd have lamb with roast potatoes, and Mum used to do a Yorkshire pudding in a big tray. She'd cut it into four, turn the oven off, and leave it in there until it was time for pudding. Then she'd put treacle on, or you could put sugar and lemon on, like a pancake. Did we fight? Of course we did. Any younger brother will know the reality of having an older brother, the elbows in your back. Oh, it's normal. I remember one mealtime where he was really riling me. One of the things that came out of that kitchen was fried bread. We used to put lard in the frying pan, put the big thick slices of white bread in, wait till it got brown, flick it over into the fat, get that brown, then bring it in here on our plates and eat it soaked with tomato ketchup. Beautiful. So I've got mine, and he's got his, and we're eating, and he's riling me. Don't say that, he kept saying it. Don't say that. And he really went for it. In the end, I got my piece of the fatty fried bread covered in tomato ketchup, and I went whap in his face. Only he ducked, and the thing went splat all down the wall. It must have been after Mum, because we wouldn't have dared do it if she were around. She was beautiful. I only had her for twelve years. Don't get me going on, because I'll start crying. When you have something like that, taken away from you at twelve years of age. I knew her, and she knew me, more importantly. She understood me and my brother far better than anyone in the world. I don't know how she and Dad met. Dad grew up in Everton, and Mum lived nearby. She used to come around, and they met and hit it off. Got married, had our kid in 1942, in the middle of the Second World War, and me at the end of the war in 44. This picture is a favourite of mine. Our kid's out there in the garden, under the washing. It's after Mum died. He used to play a lot with his guitar, just lost. We both were. I had my photography to get lost in. It takes time to learn how to do it. But when it works, it's perfect. I used to develop my pictures upstairs, here, in my bedroom. We shared it when we were younger, but later our kid moved into the front bedroom on his own. My bed's the one facing the door. It's positioned in the best place in the house to spot Father Christmas coming in, by the way. I'd use my Rolly magic camera that our kid brought back from Hamburg so I could take his picture to make him look like Elvis. I'd put the pictures in the fixer in little trays on the floor, then go into the bathroom to wash them. I'd hang the prints on a little washing line I'd made from a piece of string that went from my mirror to the cupboard. This must have been when I was about sixteen or seventeen, when I was working at André Bernard's, the ladies' hairdressers, because I'd use little hairdressing clips I'd taken from there to hold the photos on the line. Here's our bathroom and the indoor toilet. Our kid used to play his guitar in the bathroom. He liked the acoustics. We used to doodle on the toilet walls while we were sitting here, as far as we could reach. I made a pen and ink mural in my room, too, all around the light switch. We had to paint over it all before we moved out to stop souvenir hunters coming in and damaging the walls. 
We left in 1964. I'm down in London by now, and our kid's there too with his group. He asked Dad where he would like to live, thinking he might want to move to London too. But Dad was brought up here, and to him, Heswell, just outside Liverpool, was like Beverly Hills. Our kid tried to persuade him, but he wanted to live in Heswell, so that's what happened. Our kid was getting a few fans by this time, so we did a midnight flit. The fans still came after we'd gone, and Mrs. Jones, who'd moved in with her husband, sometimes invited them in and made them a cup of tea. But after thirty years, she'd had enough. She got in touch and asked whether we wanted to buy the house. We couldn't take it on, but we decided to see whether the National Trust would like it, and, after they'd seen my old photos of how the place used to look, they did. This house is so important to me, and to our kid. This is where minds were blown. This is where music history changed forever. This is the house of our formative years, where we lost our mum, where all of those extraordinary things happened, which weren't extraordinary. I liked taking photographs. My brother liked playing music. That's all. It's the historic context that makes this house so important. Now let's hear about what the Trust is doing to preserve 24th Lynn Road and plans to commemorate Sir Paul McCartney's 80th birthday this year. The Trust acquired 24th Lynn Road for two main reasons, says General Manager Simon Osborne. It was a place where popular music culture changed forever that still influences musicians to this day and we wanted to preserve and show to future generations the style of social housing after the Second World War. Since the house came into trust care, Simon's team has matched original paint colours, dressed the house according to Mike's personal recollections and photographs, and even swapped the front windows, modernised after the McCartneys moved out, with those of the house opposite. Now, as part of the trust commemoration of Sir Paul McCartney's 80th birthday this year, Conservators and curators are working on the next phase for the house. They've been talking with archivists from Sanderson to try to source the last of Mary's three original wallpaper roll ends for the parlour and exploring whether any of the doodles Mike mentions in the toilet and his bedroom still exist. They'll start, says Katie Taylor, cultural heritage curator for the Northwest, by using thermal imaging cameras to peek beneath the layers of paint. If that doesn't yield results, they'll carefully scrape off the top layers to look. It's a technique we use quite a lot in our historic houses and significant old buildings to discover previous historic decorative layers, she says. I think this might be the most recent house to have been worked on in this way. We don't know if the techniques will work on 60-year-old biro or pen and ink or pencil in the same way as on pigment paints. Maybe nothing has survived, or maybe it's all survived, protected because it's been painted over. That's one of the exciting things about working on relatively modern houses like this, how it might help conservators understand and preserve these sorts of materials in the future. It's a big year for commemoration, since as well as Paul's 80th birthday, the Beatles' first single, Love Me Do, written in the front parlour at 24th Lynn Road, was released 60 years ago. The Trust is working with the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts, co-founded in 1996 by Paul and Mark Featherstone Whitty, to offer up-and-coming musicians the chance to bring new music back to the house. This exciting project, based on an idea by musician and producer Alan Boyd, 
launched in April and will culminate in mid-June. To book onto a tour to visit 24th Lynn Road and Mendips, John Lennon's childhood home, or to find out more about the new music initiative at 4th Lynn Road, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Beatles dash childhood dash homes. Science journalist Chris Baranyuk explores how technology is shining a light on the past and helping the Trust conserve its landscapes and collections for the future. A lunar landscape, scorched black. Members of the local fire service had led the ranger to the upper slopes of Northern Ireland's highest peak, Sleeve Donard in County Down, so that he could see the extent of the devastation for himself. Healthy tufts of heather had tossed in the wind here just 48 hours before. Now it was all charred ground and smouldering remains. The fire swept across more than 200 hectares of the Mourne Mountains last April. But Mark Vinyas Alcan, lead ranger for Murloc and the Mourns, was already formulating a plan as he stood on the burnt mountaintop. He could see places where the damage was less severe, he knew a recovery project was possible, and that project would involve drones. Technology is increasingly at the heart of the Trust's many diverse conservation projects, the rescue plan for the Mourns being just one example. Special cameras, lasers and 3D modelling techniques are capturing landscapes, artefacts and even entire buildings in eye-popping detail. The resulting images offer up hidden floors needing repair and previously unnoticed landscape features and hope in the wake of disaster. Ever since the blaze, Mark and his colleagues have been working towards restoring the landscape through a programme of reduced grazing and, in some of the worst affected patches, action to help the habitat recover, such as planting heather seedlings. Knowing whether these interventions are working across such a large area is difficult, so Mark's team enlisted the help of drones to fly over the land and take pictures from above. Within weeks of the blaze, the flying machines with cameras had mapped the fire-ravaged hills, yielding vital information about how the landscape is healing. It's a tool for quantifying the extent of the damage and speed of recovery, explains Mark. The drones returned a detailed habitat map, which, when zoomed in, shows the recovery of small groups of plants and the condition of the ground. The pictures also indicate areas of waterlogged ground, which helped the team decide where to put in fire breaks to help reduce future fire damage. Using the drone images, Leon Riley of the Trust's Geographic Information System team created a virtual 3D model of the landscape through a technique called photogrammetry, where thousands of 2D photographs are stitched together digitally to make a 3D image. You can detect areas that are more vulnerable to fire than others, says Mark. The map captures the profile of the moons and shows which places get the most sun and so are more prone to severe burning, for example. Today's technological solutions, from camera-wielding drones to LiDAR, which uses a laser to make a 3D model of a landscape or object, are noticeably better in quality than those available a decade or two ago. Keith Chalice is Remote Sensing Coordinator for the Trust, helping to guide the organisation in its use of new technologies. 
you get these wonderful 3D models that you can interact with and measure from, allowing a degree of understanding and interaction with a structure or landscape that was previously impossible, he says. That isn't just useful for the present, either. Buildings and artefacts are not static, they weather and age. 3D scans allow the Trust to keep track of this activity. We can survey a structure this year, then come back in five years' time and see if there are changes, adds Keith. The work doesn't only apply to landscapes, but to a whole range of objects and artefacts, including Grinling Gibbons's sculpted panel of the crucifixion. Carved from limewood, 1.42 metres wide, it's based on Agostino Caracci's engraving of a painting by Tintoretto in the Scuola di San Rocco in Venice. Gibbons's masterpiece is part of the collection at Danamassi in Cheshire, where it hangs in the library above the fireplace. Last year, the Grinling Gibbons Society, GGS, curated a major exhibition of the master carver's work to mark his tercentenary and hoped to display the carving. But Roger Gray, 10th Earl of Stamford, who bequeathed the crucifixion with the rest of his estate to the Trust in 1976, did so under the condition that none of his prized possessions would ever be removed from his home. The carving could be moved virtually, though. GGS worked with Factum Foundation, an organisation that works to raise the profile of digital technology in conservation, to make a virtual 3D model of the relief using a combination of LIDAR and photogrammetry. Preparing and scanning the carving took three and a half days. You can't actually see much of the underside of the carving unless you take the relief off the wall, says property curator Emma Campagnaro. The 3D model makes an astounding level of detail visible. The 3D model is available to view online and a special 2D print was also produced for the travelling exhibition. Sometimes, special imaging techniques can reveal so much about a work that it changes our perception of it significantly. Conservators at the Royal Oak Foundation Conservation Studio at Knoll in Kent have recently finished cleaning a painting by John Constable from Anglesey Abbey in Cambridgeshire. Embarkation of George IV from Whitehall the opening of Waterloo Bridge, 1817, is nearly 2.5 metres across and thought to be the artist's largest work. It was layered with a varnish that had discoloured and distorted the image. During the cleaning process, conservators arranged for an X-ray of the canvas. The X-ray uncovered the fact that Constable originally painted some details quite differently. A flag was larger and more prominent, and a mass of cloud covered more of the sky. Senior remedial paintings conservator Sarah Macy says the process has uncovered evidence that the painting was actually a sketch, a less formal kind of painting that Constable never intended for public display. These sketches of his are now highly celebrated, says Sarah. They have a spontaneity and expressiveness that went on to influence the course of Western painting. Similarly. LiDAR scanning, with its remarkable capacity to create 3D landscape images, can uncloak forgotten intentions of artists, designers and builders on a huge scale. At Wallington in Northumberland, 
the Trust is using LIDAR to make detailed maps of a 22-square-mile area of the estate. The maps show every dip, ridge and furrow in virtual relief, revealing where long-lost tree lines once were. The team at Wallington recently planted 75,000 native trees on the estate, and they were able to target some places where trees once grew, according to the mapping. The scans also show some now-drained ponds. Wallington's archaeological consultant, Mark Newman, explains that identifying where the ponds were historically could help us to reorganise the hydrology of the area so it's more flood-resistant. We can't go backwards, but we can go forwards with reference to the past. That applies even in the aftermath of destruction. For Mark and his team in the Mourns, there are signs that their land management and habitat surveys, aided by drones and 3D models, are having the desired effect. We were devastated to see the impact of the fire on Sleeve Donard, but the use of drones has helped the land recover much more quickly, says Mark. As the months go by, they will guide us on how best to aid the recovery of this fragile habitat. With technology's help, wildlife is gradually returning and the heather is growing on Northern Ireland's highest peak once more. Gaze up at a magnificent ancient tree, its boughs gnarled and twisted with age, and just imagine the history it has lived through since it burst into the world as a sapling hundreds of years ago. Head of Gardens and Parklands Andy Jasper shares the stories of his favourite trees in National Trust care, taken from a new book by Simon Toomer. Any tree crown is a magnificent ecosystem, home to birds, insects, shade-loving lichens and delicate fungi. Ancient woodland in particular supports more species of wildlife than any other habitat on UK soil. But alongside their vibrant ecology, the boughs of ancient trees also shelter centuries of history, culture and mythology. They're as priceless a part of the National Trust's collections as any Turner or Rembrandt. I've long thought that trees should be better recognised for the way they connect us to the past, the memories they evoke and the quiet part they play in our country's history. So I'm delighted by the new book, 50 Great Trees of the National Trust, by Simon Toomer, former senior consultant for plant conservation at the Trust. In it, he tells the stories of some truly remarkable trees and the scenes they've witnessed. He suggests we admire woodlands in much the same way as we would an exhibition in a great museum and encourages us to pour over each tree as if it were a fine oil painting displayed in the hall. At Dineva in Carmarthenshire stands an ancient oak that has stood witness to 800 years of history and remains a living link to medieval Wales. Its life story is written into its marked and scarred trunk and limbs. Across the British Isles you'll find rhododendron, black walnut, magnolia and handkerchief trees demonstrating the historic demand for ever more exotic tree species, a fashion made popular by Victorian plant collectors, searching out specimens in distant lands while their garden-loving patrons waited in anticipation back home. The arrival of each new curiosity brought with it an ever more fascinating story of its origin. 
you can find one of England's first cork trees at Osterley Park in London. When it was planted in the 18th century, it would have been a real novelty thanks to its impressive appearance. Cork, taken from the thick outer layer of this species, has many practical uses, most notably as a plug for wine bottles. Cork bark has remarkable qualities of flexibility, insulation and impermeability to water and gases, attributes which evolved to help it survive life in the hot, dry woodlands of its native home in southern Europe and North Africa. For me, Simon's book sheds an illuminating new light upon familiar places and trees. It shows me so much more than I ever knew of how trees have shaped and moulded the UK's historic landscape. It's a celebration of the time-travelling, storytelling, life-affirming nature of trees. I've chosen a couple of its stories, which I hope will pique your curiosity. The next time you pass an old, gnarled tree, maybe you'll be encouraged to take a moment to pause and ponder the heritage lying hidden in the boughs overhead. Some famous trees are not so extraordinary in their own right, but were in the right place when something remarkable happened. That's the case with the old sycamore that stands on the village green at Tolpoddle in Dorset. Here, in 1833, six farm workers regularly met beneath it to form the Friendly Society of Agricultural Labourers and protest against the meagre farm wages of the time. The six were tried and sentenced in 1834 to transportation to Australia under the Unlawful Oaths Act, designed to prevent workers forming trade unions. Following huge demonstrations, they were pardoned and returned to England. The Tolpoddle Martyrs' act of bravery was an important moment in the formation of the trade union movement and the establishment of workers' rights. The Martyr Sycamore has come to symbolise their courage in the face of injustice. The tree is estimated to be about 300 years old, so it would have already been quite mature, even in 1834. The diameter of its trunk seems out of proportion to its small branches and modest height because the tree has been regularly pollarded. Pollarding is a type of pruning which prevents a tree from getting top-heavy and collapsing and will have helped prolong its life. Often considered native to the UK, Sycamore, or Acer pseudoplatinus, is thought to have been introduced here from Europe in the 15th century and is now fully naturalised. You can just imagine the young physicist Isaac Newton, 1643-1727, sitting under the apple tree at his childhood home, contemplating the forces of the universe. Woolsthorpe Manor in Lincolnshire was Newton's birthplace and family home, and he sought refuge here to work on his scientific theories after plague hit his university town of Cambridge in 1665. Legend has it that Newton formulated his theory of gravity after an apple from the tree in this garden fell on his head. The apple tree's experiences with gravity continued in 2015, when its seeds were sent to the International Space Station. After the seeds returned to Earth, they were propagated and grown at various locations, including one at Woolsthorpe, planted by astronaut Tim Peake. Six months on, zero gravity didn't seem to have affected their growth, and there is no doubt that, once ripe, the apples will fall to earth, as usual. Newton's tree is a flower of Kent, 
one of thousands of traditional apple varieties, many of which have fallen out of fashion. This variety has an unpleasant, mealy texture and poor flavour, so the tree might well have disappeared if it weren't for its distinguished backstory. Despite its familiarity in UK diet and culture, the domesticated apple, Malus domestica, is not a native species. Like many modern food plants, it originates from wild ancestors, in this case a crab apple, Malus cyversii, from the mountains of Central Asia. Its long history of domestication began over 4,000 years ago, and it probably spread westwards with nomadic people. 50 Great Trees of the National Trust is available to buy from nationaltrustbooks.co.uk. Every purchase you make helps the Trust carry out vital conservation work. Thank you. The summer flowers are blooming at Glendurgan Garden in Cornwall, but volunteer Andrew Hesser won't see them. He'll experience their beauty in other ways and bring his unique perspective to his work as part of the garden team here. Assistant editor Karen Gregory went to meet him. The article is read by Olivia Vinnell. Gravel crunches under our feet, and the sound of birdsong drifts through the rushing of wind in the trees. The fresh, sweet scent of a Lady Alice Fitzwilliam rhododendron gently perfumes the air, and a sense of peace pervades the three valleys of Glendurgan Garden in Cornwall. As volunteer gardener Andrew Hesser shows me around on a fine May day. Glendurgan Garden sits at the edge of the Helford Estuary, just above the hamlet of Durgan. It was created in the 1820s by the Fox family, and today its distinctive subtropical microclimate yields a lush and colourful mix of planting. We walk along winding paths punctuated by hot pink and deep red camellias and rhododendrons. The sloping valley sides are carpeted in wild flowers, bluebells in April, Andrew tells me, and cottage garden favourite, aquilegia or columbine in May. Tree ferns, palms, bananas and a giant tulip tree tower overhead. Andrew doesn't see any of this, as he is blind. He experiences the magic of Glendurgan in a different way. I get great pleasure and learn a lot from sounds, he explains. Birdsong, for example, helps me to tell how tall the trees are. The trickle of the streams has become a landmark which helps me to navigate around. A former chemical engineer, Andrew has long had an interest in gardening and the natural world. In 2019, he heard a National Trust podcast about Glendurgan. At the time, I was looking for more ways to get closer to nature, he says. I'd already done some volunteering with a local wildlife trust, but I wanted the opportunity to volunteer more regularly and follow the seasonal changes in a garden. It took me two months to pluck up courage to send in my application form. I was worried I might not be given a chance to get fully involved, but the team has truly made me feel welcome and included. I've also been able to offer them a different perspective on the garden. The gardening team at Glendurgan includes Ned Lomax, assistant head gardener, and gardener Jamie Pikesley, who offered to buddy with Andrew. One of the first things we did was work with Andrew to help familiarise him with the garden and spaces where he will be working, says Ned. Glendurgan is a challenging site to navigate, as it's so steep, 
Working with Andrew has been such a positive experience, adds Jamie. Considering how to help him learn his own way around has made me think about the garden in a completely different way. Andrew uses a cane to navigate his way around the garden. He finds that touching physical landmarks, such as benches, helps him orientate himself, so he uses his cane to tap against the stone edges of gravel paths. At first, Jamie accompanied Andrew, covering small sections of path at a time and identifying landmarks together. Andrew recorded reminders for himself onto voice notes on his phone. Before long, he was able to navigate the journey to familiar workplaces, such as the potting shed, on his own, though Jamie still accompanies him when he is learning new paths. For me, it's very important to be independent and get from A to B on my own, Andrew says. It takes a lot of learning, footstep by footstep. Having Ned or Jamie describe things to me and learning my way around means I'm able to appreciate the gardens as well as carry out the work they need me to do. Jamie and Ned worked with Andrew to identify what tasks would be most suitable for him. These include potting seedlings, planting out and raking the gravel path. On one occasion, I planted a lime tree, he says. It gave me a confidence boost to be shown what to do and then trusted to plant the tree on my own. Andrew also enjoys being able to touch and smell flowers at different times of the year. Today, the Lady Alice Fitzwilliam rhododendron is in flower and Andrew stops to hear Ned describe its white, funnel-shaped petals. Some people say it smells like nutmeg, Ned says. In the months before the pandemic, Andrew was volunteering at Glendurgan once a week. He found the work helped him to keep active, contributing as part of the team felt purposeful, and being outdoors in nature improved his overall well-being. One of the ways people relieve stress or address mental health issues is to go into the great outdoors, he says. Wide open spaces can be stressful if you can't see, so you can feel like you're missing out. Being here at Glendurgan, learning the roots and being given jobs to do all contribute to making it feel like a friendly place to be. Volunteering here has had an amazing effect on my life in terms of the pleasure and enjoyment I get from it. It's not just Andrew who has benefited from his volunteering experience. Having him as part of their team has helped Glendurgan's gardeners to see the garden in a new light. Working with Andrew has given me a much more holistic experience of the garden, says Jamie. Usually with gardens, vision is so important, especially when it comes to planting schemes and getting the right-sized plants and colours. The landmarks, such as benches, are usually things I take for granted, or pass by every day and don't really notice. Walking around with Andrew, you take in so much more of the garden. It's made me realise there's more to a garden than just the visual impact. I've had to be more aware of how landmarks shift in my surroundings and notice things like overhanging branches. The gardeners have also been able to observe how Andrew completes tasks such as potting out seedlings in a different way, relying on touch to tease out each root ball an advantage with delicate young plants. Andrew has big ambitions for the future. He recently set up a social enterprise to help visually impaired people connect with nature and has over 80 broad bean plants at home to attend to. Volunteering for the Trust has given me a renewed interest in growing my own veg and the confidence to encourage other visually impaired people to enjoy and explore the natural world, he says.
The pandemic, as with so many others, has put paid to Andrew's volunteering for the time being, but he hopes to be back at Glendurgan again as soon as he can. My ambition is to one day give sighted people a guided tour of the gardens, he says. Until then, I hope everyone can enjoy all the sounds, scents and atmosphere here. If you'd like to find out more about volunteering with the Trust, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash volunteer. James Brown is an archaeologist for the London and the South East region. He shares his passion for the past and how you can get involved in this year's Festival of Archaeology. His words are read by Glenn McCready. Growing up in Warwickshire, I was lucky enough to have Kenilworth Castle on my doorstep. I spent much of my childhood playing in its grounds. It's managed by English heritage, but local residents had free access. I loved climbing over the ruined walls and playing knights defending the castle against dragons. My dad used to travel a lot for work. He'd often take us with him, and my mum and I would visit the library for books about the history of where we were going. I was intrigued by the legends of Greek and Norse mythology. When I found out you could do a job that involved exploring old stories like these and being outdoors at the same time, it was almost too good to be true. I wake up excited about what the day might hold. There's no normal working day, but I love that. I work at a huge variety of places across the southeast, ranging from Runnymede in Surrey, the site of the sealing of the Magna Carta in 1215, to Sisbury Ring in West Sussex, the county's largest hill fort. I give advice to our teams on the ground, answering questions on everything from Roman roads to Second World War anti-aircraft sites. If I've been tied to my desk for too long, I'll join up with some of the Trust's archaeological volunteers or one of the many local archaeological societies we work with. At its heart, archaeology is about people, and their stories. As archaeologists, we help visitors look for clues of how landscapes have been shaped by human lives over thousands of years. When I talk to visitors, I see their eyes light up. Many trust places look natural or wild to the untrained eye, but when you know where to look, people and their stories are always there. The Trust is taking part in the Festival of Archaeology again this year. It's an annual two-week celebration of archaeology, with events and activities run by archaeological societies and organisations across the country to bring people together to get hands-on. During the pandemic, we installed QR codes around Sisbury Ring. It was in partnership with South Downs National Park Authority, Visitors scan the codes with their phone to play videos revealing what took place where they're standing, from Roman fields to medieval footpaths, huge Iron Age ramparts to Second World War anti-tank guns and searchlights. I present the films, so it's as though I'm your virtual tour guide. Archaeological clues might even help us adapt to climate change. High up on the South Downs, the patterns of prehistoric field systems still exist. The archaeological record shows the climate became colder and wetter in 1400 BC, 1000 BC and 800 BC, which made farming there difficult. So people moved further down into the valleys. 
being able to map and show how resilient humans have been in the past can help us think positively about how we can adapt to future challenges. The Festival of Archaeology takes place from the 16th to the 31st of July. To find events near you, go to archaeologyuk.org forward slash festival. Before we wrap up this edition, it's time to hear about some of the events going on at National Trust Places this summer. Please make sure to check individual property websites or the National Trust app or call the property for the latest information before you visit. Many trust places will be marking the Platinum Jubilee over the long June bank holiday weekend with music, picnics and games, as well as joining in the Jubilee beacon lighting. And here are some of the Jubilee celebrations taking place from the 2nd to the 5th of June. At Nostal in West Yorkshire, visitors can take part in summer lawn games and enjoy a picnic on a huge red, white and blue picnic blanket, lovingly handmade by visitors and the local community. Afterwards, it will be made into smaller blankets and donated to local charities. Mrs Greville hosted three kings during her time at Polesden Lacey in Surrey, but you don't need to be a royal to join in the 1950s-themed jubilee celebrations over the bank holiday weekend, enjoy live music each day, and a treasure hunt in the pleasure grounds. Dress up and join the garden party at Whittock Manor and Gardens in the West Midlands. Have a go at Victorian lawn games, make your own nature crown or flag, and try on some Victorian clothes. In July, the UK's annual celebration of archaeology, coordinated by the Council for British Archaeology, sees events taking place all over the country. At Chedworth Roman Villa in Gloucestershire, experience how life was at the villa, with costumed characters and archaeology handling sessions. On the 16th and 17th of July, at Badbury Rings in Dorset, join Trust Archaeologists and Rangers for a walking tour. And on the 31st of July, there's an archaeology-themed family fun day at Corf Castle in Dorset. September sees the return of England's largest festival of history and culture for a celebration of industry, innovation and invention. Discover the wealth of hidden places and stories on your doorstep or further afield this September with Heritage Open Days, England's largest festival of history, architecture and culture. The annual festival, now in its 28th year, brings people together in a series of events organised by thousands of local organisations and volunteers. Many places, not usually open to the public, will open their doors to visitors, all free of charge. The theme this year is Astounding Inventions. Alongside a host of different heritage events, there will be some that showcase England's rich history of invention, innovation and industry. Expect celebrations of local inventors and stories of less successful endeavours, short-lived oddities or even outright failures in an exploration of the legacy of English invention. Events will be listed on heritageopendays.org.uk between June and September, so keep checking to see what's on in your area. Well, that's all from us this summer issue. I hope you've enjoyed it, and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. The National Trust magazine Summer 2022 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. The readers in this edition were Akia Henry, Glenn McCready and Olivia Vinnell. 
It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding. All items are copyright. CDs of this audio edition are available to visually impaired members of the National Trust and are distributed by the RNIB. If you know of anyone who is eligible and would like to receive one, please call the RNIB on 01733 375 370 or you can write enclosing the membership number to Sales and Operations, RNIB, Midgate House, Midgate, Peterborough, PE11TN. This audio magazine is also available to download or stream as a podcast. For more information on this and other National Trust podcasts, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine.